Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. If you're into Broadway, if you're into stage musicals at all, you're probably familiar with Patti Lapone, and you already know what a legend she is. I'm not even super into musicals or Broadway at all, and I can even tell you what a legend she is. She's a star of Broadway in a way there aren't stars of Broadway anymore. I'll give you an example. Like, you know the role of Eva Perone in Evita? She kind of defined that role. Even more so, like, you know Les Miserables, like the famous musical? She originated the role of Fantine. Like, everybody who plays Fantine after her is kind of doing Patti Lapone. I mean, and her voice. Just take a listen to this. Good, you got it. Take, for instance, Mrs. Mooney and her pie shop. Business never better using only pussy cats and toast. Now a pussy's good for maybe six or seven at the most. It's Patty Lapone as Mrs. Lovett in the surprisingly obscene Sweeney Todd. Outside of that, she's been on a lot of big TV shows like uh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and Frasier. She was in that movie Bo is Afraid. To be honest, she like haunted my nightmares in that. And I won't even go into the Tonys and Grammys that she's won. Patty Lapone, you should also know in, in my circles, is known as a bit of a great chat because she won't hold back. Like, she's of an era where if you're going to give your opinion, you're going to give your honest opinion. And I'll say she definitely uh, lived up to that today. She's touring a show that's also kind of an opinion. It's called Don't Monkey with Broadway. It's some stories. It's some of her biggest hits. And ahead of bringing her show to Canada, to Toronto's Meridian Hall, Patty Lapone joined me from her apartment in New York for a chat. How are you? I'm good, Tom. How are you? I'm not too bad. Lovely, lovely to meet you. And you. How's that tour been going? It's been great. You know, it's sporadic. We, we, we had uh, dates in Bloomington, Indiana, and Charleston, South Carolina, two weeks ago, I think, and, uh, or a week ago. And now we're waiting to come to Toronto and St. Paul. Oh, you're, you're doing the cold weather, the cold weather places, <laughs> just getting them out of the way. If it gets cold. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah, if it ever gets cold again. <laughs> if it ever gets cold again. Exactly. Well, it's, it's, it's exciting to talk to you. I want to talk a little bit about your story while I have you. I thought I'd start by asking, when did you first know that you had a, a voice? I was really young. Um, I started tap dancing at four years old, and um, I fell in love with the audience, and I never looked back. And so... Uh, it, it, basically, it chose me. And in choosing me, it opened up every possible door. I, you know, I wasn't uh, intimidated to sing or act crazy or make people laugh or dance um, because it chose me. It just opened up the doors. So at some point when I was quite young, I started singing and Everybody discovered. Listen, my mother, when I was, I think, three or four years old, would have me have me do Marilyn Monroe imitations. Go figure where that came from. Uh, I have no idea. I remember I used to drop 
a shirt off my shoulder and do something like fish things with my lips. And that was the Marilyn Monroe imitation. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I just, you know, I discovered that I was free, basically, when I was four years old. Was there someone saying, geez, Patty, you're pretty good. You got a good voice. I think they said I was loud. <laughs> Before they said I was good. <laughs> That's always been my problem. <laughs> there was, I'll tell you a very funny story that I was played Grossinger's. I don't know what the hell I was doing at Grossinger's, but, you know, in the Catskills, they had all of these resorts and Grossinger's was one of them. <laughs> I was doing my show and a woman in the front row started waving her arms frantically. I stopped the band. I stopped singing. And she said, too loud, Patty, too oh, loud. Oh, God. Oh, my God. <laughs> so <laughs> I was born with these lungs and and this voice that doesn't quit. It just, considering the abuse I've put my voice through yeah. in the course of my lifetime, it's as good as it's ever been. And I couldn't tell you why, except. I don't know. I made a pact with the devil or something. And you smoked a pact with the devil. Did you? Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You no, know I did. <laughs> and you were like, what, 10 when you did the Mikado? Uh, I, yeah, I was in third grade. Is that? And I was, the, I was, under, I was an understudy to Kadishaw, an elderly woman. <laughs> is, that, is that a moment? Or is that, I mean, I just talked to Patrick Stewart, and he told me that like the early times that he got on stage, everything was open to him, and he realized he wanted to do this for the rest of his life. Is that the same well, thing? I can, it, well, that's my point. I, as I said earlier, you know, once it chooses you, once you understand that this is a, a, a creative freedom, nothing is off limits. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's just not. And um, I can remember being on stage in the third grade in the Ocean Avenue Elementary School while Heather White played Catashaw. And I was her understudy going, she's never going to be in show business. Why is she playing it? I should be playing it. I remember the entire, I remember where I was on the stage. I was on stage right. And, you know, to this day, I have to look when they say, Patty, move right, move left. I have to look at my hands to figure out which is right and which is left when I'm on stage. I'm not dyslexic. I'm dyslexic on stage. It's bizarre. Um, it's um, it's a pity that our arts, I don't know about Canada, but certainly in America, yeah. we're, it's, it's, we're considered third-class citizens when it's, in fact, it's a passage. It's a, it's a rite of passage. It is a human right storytelling. Um our art and culture is is our is our human right. I, I feel the same way. I just did a talk actually recently about how, like, if it wasn't for the music educators in my life, I wouldn't be doing any of this stuff. And like, because it teaches you more, so much more than just like sight reading. It teaches you so so much more than like, like I'm a I was a folk musician who ended up doing interviews on on, on public radio, you know, and like, so you know the the least lucrative paths in the arts I found, but the. <laughs> <laughs> but the, but, the, <laughs> but the, uh, um, if it wasn't for the music educators in my life, if it wasn't for those programs, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what I'd be doing. Well, are you good in math? No, not really. You aren't because I found when and growing up and being in the music classes that I was in and being in the orchestra and in the band and the chorus, the kids that were that gravitated towards music were the mathematicians. Oh uh, yeah, because of the counting. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's why I always play in, in, in four. I can never play in seven. Well, I'm a lousy count. I refuse to count. I'm not a lousy counter. I just refuse to count. <laughs> because I'm a lousy counter, I just go, no, nah, I'm not going to count. You'll figure it out for me. And I hear, <laughs> I, I hear the music. But 
But I mean, I just was, I was the worst in, in arithmetic and math. It's just not, I, thought, I keep going, I can't do math. That's why I'm an actress. Let me, let me ask you, I want to ask you about Evita. So, so for, for people who don't know, uh, you, you landed uh, Evita on, on Broadway. You played the lead, uh, Eva Peron, the former first lady of Argentina. You got you your first Tony. I remember hanging out with people who, in the musical theater world who used to talk about Evita like a gauntlet. Because my understanding of it is that you're on stage so much. It requires so much of you in your, in your musical ability. I mean, here I am trying to tell you, but like, how, how was it that early in your career taking on a role like that? It was horrible. Um, you know, and, and I would say that, and Hal Prince didn't like it at all, but it was the absolute truth. When I first heard the score to Evita, I thought Andrew Lloyd Webber hated women because the score's written in a soprano's passaggio, which is, and a passaggio is where, if, if you think of a rubber band and you pull a rubber band, the weakest spot is in the middle. That's a passaggio in a soprano. You have a chest voice, a head voice. And then right in the middle is where you have to negotiate changing gears. And all of the high notes are written in that break. And also, if you want to play the role with accuracy and passion, it can't be lyric. Because I have four tapes of Eva Peron on the Casa Rosado. You know, she she's like Sarah Palin or Marjorie Taylor Greene. You either like that voice or you can't. You just want to kill them because the voice is so piercing. It's horrible. That's Evita Paron, that that piercing sound that mesmerized all of the death camisados. So you have to imbue that music with that energy and that tone. And that was the danger. That was the danger because she, I blew out my voice so many times just going, he supports you, for he loves you, understands you, he's one of you. And, and those were notes are E, E, F, G. So, and, and I would go on the stage every night. And if I, if I hit screw the middle classes, I will never accept them. That's D, 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 E, F. And I'm, if, if, I, if I hit it wrong on Monday night, it affected the rest of that night, which affected Tuesday, which affected Wednesday, which affected Thursday, which affected Friday, which affected Saturday. And it was trial by fire. And I wasn't about to fail. I mean, this was my test. This yeah. was my big test. And the fact that I willed my voice every single night to hit those notes and I didn't do more damage to my voice is shocking. And the role itself is pretty spectacular. I had a blast acting it. I couldn't sing it. And every night I went on stage in, a, in terror, absolute terror. Um, that's not good for the soul. <laughs> it's not good for the head. It's not good for anything. But I knew it was my test. I knew that if I survived this, I could survive anything. And how did your life change afterwards, after Evita? Oh, nothing. You know, in the old days, I think of, of Broadway musicals. Um, 
Well, it was a different environment, you know, where Ethel Merman and Mary Martin would do shows and then they would go to the 21 Club and then they'd, you know, go to some uh, after-hours cabaret and sing until 3, 4 o'clock in the morning and do the whole thing all over again the next day. We don't have those cabaret rooms anymore. Nobody stays, no restaurant stays open late and nothing happens. I mean, when I was doing Evita and I would go to the 21 Club, the the maitre d' recognized me. The only thing that changed in my life is that I could get a table <laughs> at a restaurant. <laughs> but nothing else changed because also because I hit with a very controversial um, woman. This Evita Peron, the Peronistas, the Peronistas um, harbored Nazis. And so nobody was happy that Evita was even on stage. So I had a con- very controversial reputation afterwards. Really? Um, yeah, I was a tap dancing fascist dictator. <laughs> I never would have thought about that, that you would have, yeah. you, would, you would have, people would have conflated the role you chose with, with you yourself. Yeah. So yeah. how, how are you now when you sing Don't Cry For Me? Cause you do Don't Cry For Me Argentina in the show now, right? Yeah. The touring show. How's, how's that we, for you? It's great because people want me to sing it. People, you know, there's something about that song that touches people, whether they've seen the show or not, they know that song. And there's something in that song that Andrew wrote that really moves people. Yeah. And and I know people want me to sing it. And so I am very happy to sing it for them. It never gets old. Um, and because the audience wants it, so it, it, there's no way it could get, out, get old. It won't be easy. You'll think it's strange when I try to explain how I feel That I still need your love after all that I've done I look at the audience every night when I'm singing it and you see a look on their faces and it's not me it's a song and I, you know I had I had people come backstage that were pro-peronista and anti-peronista who said I had her to a T because what they saw was Evita Peron not me what they saw was Evita Peron they saw what they wanted to see so people hear that song um, and they there's something that ev- evokes in them some sort of reaction and, and it's, so it's wonderful don't cry for me Argentina the truth is I never left you All through my wild days My mad existence I kept my promise Don't keep your distance Which is, which is acting technique. Which is acting technique is even if you're playing someone who people hate, finding the humanity in them so they feel attached to them. Right, and that's, I mean, because right after she finishes that song in the play, she goes, just listen to that. The voice of Argentina, I am loved, I am adored. And so she's she's conning them. Yeah. Evita's conning them. But they loved her. And of course, when she did finally die, the the Argentinian people thought that they had killed her. And she had an even stronger life dead than she had alive. Yeah. They vilified her. She died. They glorified her. I, I spend a lot of time in the show talking to actors, and one of the things we often talk about is like the responsibility of taking on a role after somebody. You know, I, I talk to people who come in and do King Lear, and they talk to me about, oh, you know, I watched Laurence Olivier, or you know, I watched blah 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 blah. You know, they and they'll talk about, oh, you know, I, I couldn't get over that that performance, and I try to ignore it and all that stuff. It's rare that I get to talk to someone who originated something. Like it's it's rare to, to talk to someone who originated a, a, a role as big as the the one in Les Mis, as Fantine.
So for people who don't know, I mean, you originated the character Fantine in, in, in London. It's run all over the world. It's been adapted for movies. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the biggest musicals of all time. Can you talk to me about originating a role? Yeah. Um, I was brought into this by Cameron McIntosh. They, they couldn't find... It's interesting. This is an interesting story. I was doing um, Oliver on Broadway, and Cameron produced that as well. And Cameron saw me and said, there's a role for you in, Le- in a, the next thing I'm doing. They couldn't find a Fontaine. So he came back to me and he said, will you come? I heard the first four bars of the recording, the French recording, and I said... I knew it was a hit. I knew it was a hit. Look down, look down, don't look them in the eye. Look down, look down, you're here until you die. And I said, yes. So now they've brought me in. I'm the only American. I'm the only one with a musical theater pedigree because it was really Royal Shakespeare Company actors that were doing the roles in a musical. And so I'm the only one that has a Tony Award. I'm the only American. I'm the only one that understands musical theater. So I had more confidence to talk to Claude Michel and to Alain. But what I learned was how the British actors talk to their directors. And I understood that we American actors, and I don't know about Canadian actors, but we American actors, first of all, don't have very good directors, but also don't know how to communicate what we need, what we want, what we think the character is to our directors. And I just saw a dialogue between an actor on the stage and a director in an audience. And the actor had more control because we actually have more control. We're the ones on the stage facing the audience. They, the creators have, they can only see it once. Then they start to second guess the audience because they're looking, but they only audiences see it once. But our directors see it more than once. So they start to second guess themselves. And Alan uh, Roger stood on the stage and argued with Trevor about a point. And I was so impressed with that. So when I when I was doing Fantine, I was the one that put in a, a, a run. Uh, it was a held note and the orchestra moved. And I said to Claude Michel, why am I holding the note and the orchestra is moving? I should move with the orchestra. So that, that there's a run. I put that in. Oh, the other thing that's kind of crazy that actors have to contend with. Our stage business is no longer our stage business. It's, it becomes property of the production. So whatever we've created, yeah. we don't get credit for. Right. It's not, it's not like you're a songwriter who contributes three words to a song and makes royalties off of it. You make choices, and if that choice becomes the standard for the musical, that's, exactly. that belongs to the musical. Exactly. Exactly. I was, I, was, uh, I went down to, Evita, uh, down to Australia to recreate Evita, and the stage manager was giving me my moves. I went, yeah, I know. I created yeah. that. So, yeah. I know what I'm doing. Because right, my next question was going to be, when you watch other pr- productions of Les Mis, do you see your choices? Do you see, like, your Fontaine and other Fontaines? So the answer is yes. Actually, I've never seen another production of Les Mis. <laughs> I was going to say, I was shaking my head. Yes, I do. I didn't see the movie. It's not because I've never seen a production that I've been in that I've left. I didn't go back and look at Evita. I don't go back and see Sweeney Todd, you know, after I leave it to see stuff. I, it's over for me. It's, you know, it's sort of, that's what I did. And then I leave it and move on to the next thing. So I saw a, a bit of Anne Hathaway singing, I Dreamed a Dream. And, and I was just very upset with the director shooting down her throat um, as opposed to what uh, she was doing. Um, and it's interesting how we've lost the technique of filming movie musicals. When you, when you look at, the old movie musicals, they, I think it's a... Like West Side Story know, and that kind of thing? Yeah. I said a wide shot, a long shot, because they're showing the legs of the dancers. Uh-huh. They're not doing these MTV 
music cuts. You know what I mean? They're not doing chess up. So why they don't understand how to shoot a musical is beyond me. Broadway-wise, I was curious about this. So a few years ago, you announced you're taking a break from Broadway. And then pretty, pretty, like not too long after that, you're offered the role of Joanne in a, you got a piece of paper there or something like that? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm touching it. Yeah. Oh, no problem. It's, it? it's coming through pretty loud there. That's the oh, I'm thing. sorry. No, that's right. It's my recipe book. I'm playing with a piece of paper. I don't know. Am I nervous? Is it Alice okay, Waters? No, it's my recipe book. Oh, no way. You have a recipe book? It's all my collection of recipes that I sort of elevated the um, computer on. Um, I'll put my hands Oh, on no. You move your hands all you want. I think it was just that this, like that kind of thing was happening. Oh, that? Yeah, that's exactly what yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> I just can't believe I'm giving you stage directions. I just never thought that would ever happen in my oh, entire life. But you see, I'm a, I'm a director's actor. I love stage directions. <laughs> I'll, I'll keep that in mind. So so a few years ago, you're, you're, and you're, you're now you're taking a break from Broadway. Then you're offered the role of Joanne in the revival of Sondheim's musical company. Talk me through that. You're, you're, you're out, and like it's like in The Godfather, you're out and then you're pulled, pulled back in. Well, what happened was um, I, <laughs> I was doing war paint, and before we opened, I was diagnosed with bone on bone on my hip, and I needed oh. a hip replacement. And I went through 10 months of uh, war paint having one hip that was the femur apparently was disintegrating when they, when I finally got the hip replacement show business has broken my body. Musicals have broken my body. I have two new hips, a new shoulder. I got to get the other shoulder done. Um, it's just, it's a, it's, it's extremely difficult on the body. So I gave up musicals. I was done. I've done enough, but I had, before I gave up musicals, I saw Marianne Elliott's, um, War, War Horse at Lincoln Center Theater and Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime in London. And I put it out to the universe that I wanted to work with this woman. I wanted to work with Marianne Elliott. Now I have, I have to leave War Paint, have a hip replacement. And she calls. And I said, no, 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 no. And then I remembered what I had put out in the universe. And, and I thought, if I don't say yes, she'll never ask me again. And this is the woman I wanted to work with. And I am so glad I did. And put me through hell and give me support for being alive. Make me alive. Make me alive. Make me She's an extraordinary uh, visionary. She is a nurturer in the room. It's an incredibly safe space for all of us, so it makes it incredibly creative because we're allowed to fail. Mm. Um, and um, I mean, she's just brilliant. I'm glad you. I'm glad she can still do it. I mean, I know that sounds. That's. I don't. I don't mean for that to sound patronizing, but I never thought about how being in a musical for your entire being musicals for your entire life. It's so physical it takes up every yeah. single part of you it'll break your body you're right it does and and you know i'm still built for it i can you know i'm eight shows a week I, this is what i was built to do but it just and it's not just on stage you're negotiating sets and platforms and everything backstage to get on stage stairs it's just crazy if somebody wants me who's that i can bring that's the door uh, the 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 um doorman downstairs is saying Either someone's coming up 
or who knows, it's stuffed. Um, One time I was talking to Anne Murray and she got a mattress delivered in the middle of her interview. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little bit of Patti Lapone singing I Dreamed a Dream from the original Broadway recording of Les Mis. You just heard part of my conversation with Broadway legend Patti Lapone. Coming up on the show, she'll tell you why she thinks if she was starting out today, she'd never make it. Plus, new music from Georgia Smith after this on Q. One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon and Time, is back for another round. This season, we're diving deep into some of McCartney's most beloved songs. Yesterday, Band on the Run, Hey Jude. And McCartney's favourite song in his entire catalogue, here, there and everywhere. Listen to season two of McCartney, A Life in Lyrics on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Going into this business, you have to be prepared. You have to be prepared. Really prepared. I wouldn't, if I was starting out now, I don't know, I wouldn't make it. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with the legendary Broadway star, Patti Lapone, who, as you heard right there, doesn't know if she would make it today. And we're going we're gonna to talk about that in just a second. Patty's on tour right now with a show called Don't Monkey with Broadway. It's all about her decades-long relationship with Broadway, her love of show tune. She sings some of her most iconic performances. She's done over a 50-year career. Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, um, I, I Dreamed a Dream. And in our conversation so far, Patty has been, as she always is in every interview she does, incredibly honest and forthright with what she thinks about Broadway today. One person that features prominently in her show is the composer and lyricist Stephen Sondheim. He was a friend of Patty's. She worked with him before he passed away in 2021. So I asked her what he was like, and she was honest. Take a listen. I wanted to ask you about Sondheim, um, because he is uh, this influential figure in your life. You do three of his songs in a row in your show. He, to me... Growing up, you know, learning about music, going to music school and all that kind of stuff. He's kind of chaplain-y to me. Like, Charlie, like, he's he's sort of this, like, figure to me, this sort of name to me. I'm so familiar with his work. I don't really know anything about him, about what, what he was like. What was – I see you smiling. What was Stephen Sondheim like? Well, he was controversial. He was uh, capricious. He was um, – uh, he could be very mean. Um he could be very loving, but I think ultimately what he was was deeply, deeply emotional and deeply, deeply in love with musical theater, with people. I think he was insecure. He was human, very, very human. I got to know him socially after I sort of knew him a bit professionally, where the first time I actually auditioned for him, it was for the replacement of Dot in Sunday in the Park. And he came downstage and went, I don't want any belting. And I went, 
I haven't even opened my mouth and I was already intimidated. I did not get the part. Marianne Plunkett got it. I saw him socially and I preferred actually seeing him socially than working with him. And the first time I worked with him, um, he was very complimentary and helpful. But then there was one time I worked with him where I actually said he was yelling at me. And I, I said that if anybody had any less experience than me, they would turn in their equity cards because it was that brutal. And there is a school of thought among certain um, creators in New York that you have to humiliate and destroy a person to get a performance out of them. It's not the case. And I've gone through several of them um, just because I was coming of age in musicals when they were alive and they were creating and they were cruel. Um, but it made me stronger. You know what I mean? It wasn't going to kill me. Is that changing now? I think it's gone too far in the other direction. The sensitivity training is a little too much for me. It's too over the top. You know, we, it's an intimate, it's an intimate, um, that's the siren outside the window. It's an intimate business. And in order for us to, and it's also a very sexy business. So, you know, sex appeal is charisma. Charisma is sex appeal. Um, you, you can't have, you can't work with another actor that says, don't touch me or don't look at me or address me a certain way. It's ridiculous as far as I'm concerned. It's like, what are you doing in the business if you've got so many hangups, hangups about your life? It's like, this is a, you, we have to be as open as possible in order to interpret. There needs, we have to be as accepting as, as possible. There needs to be trust. There needs to be trust, as much trust yeah. as possible. Yeah, exactly. It's it, the business has changed so much that I don't, I don't know how anything gets done. Yeah, <laughs> I really don't. You're, but like, yeah, because the Broadway that you're the, the Broadway that exists now must be so different than the Broadway you came up in. Yeah, I don't know what this Broadway is actually. I'm not quite sure because it, it it's been changing for a while. But I, it looks like it's a combination of Disneyland, the circus, and Las Vegas. Whoever intended to dumb down the citizens of America have done a fantastic job. We are dumb as shit. And it's, it's, you see it in choices of, of, of material that's on stage right now. It's, you know, it's the pop musicals and, and people are going to see what they know. Yeah. They don't want to be, they don't want to be challenged. They don't want to invest in something that that might change them in some way. Jukebox musicals, right? People go to see um, songs, of, uh, pop songs that they're that they're familiar with. Is what you're talking right. about there? Yeah, yeah. I read a wonderful book by Harold Clerman called "The Fervent Years," and the group theater was sort of a reaction to what was on Broadway at the time, which was gaiety. Mm. And I'm wondering if we're in the same position now because it feels like there's gaiety on Broadway, and will there be somebody that creates a theater that educates the? Um, the, the populace. I hope so, because we need this. I go, I, I'm going back to what I said earlier, where art is an essential. Um, it's just essential. We are essential workers. How is the, how is the TV and, and film side of your career? Like, I want to play, I want to play something for, for people who only have an idea of you as a, as a, a stage star. They'll know you from like Will and Grace. They'll know you from Glee. They'll know you from Girls. Just, just take a listen to this. I just want to say what an honor it is to be here in your home, and you're such an inspiration to us underdogs. Completely. What makes you think I was ever an underdog? I never auditioned for the chorus. Damn. And you want to know why? Self-esteem. 
Confidence. I knew who I was. I knew who I was. Do you know who you are? Not a clue. Honestly, I just need like two to three sentences on the positive impacts Tronova's had on your day-to-day -day life. Oh, Hannah, please. Honey, chill out. Relax. Yeah, relax. 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 That is Patti Lapone playing Patti Lapone on the TV show Girls. <laughs> <laughs> It was so much fun. How do you approach playing yourself? Well, I've tried to avoid it, quite frankly. Um, um, I remember I got a telephone call from my agents at the time saying that Ryan Murphy wanted me to wanted to feature me in Glee, and I went, "Stop! I'm still a working actor. I don't want to Patty Lapone me out of the business. I'm not Cher. I'm not Madonna. I'm not Britney Spears. I'm still a working actor. So I'm trying to avoid it. But Girls is pretty unique, and and uh, Lena Dunham is so talented. And it was a blast. It was a blast to do. I had a ball. Um, I guess it. You know, I just set myself up. It's it's like there's a there's a public perception of Patty Lapone, and then there's actual Patty Lapone. Right. Yes. Absolutely true. Right. Yeah, you feel that? Yeah, oh, always. And I've always said that I am scared to death in my life, but I'm fearless on stage. And so people see me in a public environment. They don't see me at home <laughs> cowering because it's dark. <laughs> <laughs> Fussing with my cookbooks. <laughs> I'm still scared of the inside dark. I think the boogeyman lives under the bed. Isn't that funny that someone like you would get up on stage in front of uh strangers every single night for your entire life oh it's it's different it's um in the in the shows in the concerts i am me and that that took a lot of learning because and i think i learned more in cabaret than i ever learned at juilliard because you are presenting you you are presenting your persona to an audience without a mask but in in theater or on in film whatever we're, we're playing characters so we are basically hiding behind a mask or in you know we're imbuing a character that is not our uh, not our us but it's it's i'm not two different people i just have two different jobs one is me and the other is my career my acting ability my singing ability to my storytelling that's what it is one is me and one is my storytelling i, I love that i got two questions for you and you've been really generous with your time i got two questions before we go one is You've been on Broadway 50 years. In that time, as you mentioned, there's been a lot of change. What was the line you used? It's like, uh, it's like time, it's like Marvel and what did you say? Like it was like. Oh, Disneyland, the circus and Las Vegas. That's what it feels like now. If, if you could snap your fingers and change one thing about Broadway right now, what would it be? To make it affordable for people, for everybody to come and see. Drop the ticket prices to practically nothing. Make it a popular sport, not an elite sport. Was it ever? Like when you were starting out, was it, was it something that the average person oh, yeah. would go to? Yeah, yeah, sure. And, you you know, you they have twofers, but it's, I mean, I remember when they raised the ticket prices in Evita, the ticket, the highest ticket price was $35. Right. And we thought they raised the ticket price and we were horrified. Um but now it's ridiculous. It's insane. And there's too many people involved. You know, there's ticket masters and what do you call those guys? There's, um, I don't know, there's a, a brokers, um, scalp, brokers and scalpers. Yeah. You know, they'll buy blocks of tickets and sell you if you want to. And there's premium seats. What the, excuse my language, premium seats. What the, it's the same seat. It's, it's not better because it has a cushion on it. It's the same seat. And why, if you pay premium, you're pushing the ticket prices up. It's crazy. I hear every day from, folks uh, who listen to this show 
Um, and it means a lot to me. I hear from people who are starting out. I realize I'm getting an opportunity to talk to you through a long and storied career as one of the most successful stage actors of our time. Any any advice for these people who are listening right now starting out? I would say study the craft. Um, continue to study to know the history of what you're doing and to know everything about it and and just and also physically study everything because there's so much talent out there right now in shitty productions, my might add. I mean, I see so much bad theater, but I look at the stage going, oh, my God, the talent on that stage. I mean, there's triple and quadruple threat threats out there and they're fantastic. So going into this business, you have to be prepared. You have to be prepared really prepared i wouldn't if i was starting out now i don't i wouldn't make it really uh uh the talent is extraordinary it's and it's it's inspiring it's so wonderful to see it's but i i hate that they're in bad productions or you're not there you know not i mean i don't know i have i have critic i have a critical eye of course i do because i've seen great mm. and that so i i'm comparing to the great eye that i have seen but i, I the talent the human ability is extraordinary. Um, I'm thrilled by it. Patty, what a, what a joy to get to talk to you. Thanks so much for making the time. Oh, thank you, Tom. It was my pleasure, and I hope I hope people come to see the show. It is a lot of fun. It's like the golden age of musical theater. Um, the songs, they'll recognize all of them, they, I think. <laughs> they better. Check, check, check this out. Uh, I'll do it right now. Don't Monkey with Broadway is coming to the Meridian Hall in Toronto on November 17th. For tickets, head to pattyatlapone.net. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Let's talk a little bit about the artist Georgia Smith, the British singer. She was one of the standout features on Drake's 2017 mixtape, More Life. She collaborated with Kendrick Lamar on the soundtrack to Black Panther. She was nominated for Best New Artist at the Grammys in 2019. She has a really interesting story, and she's going to kind of tell it today. She released the single called Blue Lights that she made at home in her small town in England on a computer. It goes viral instantly. She puts out her first album, Lost and Found. It gets called one of the best British albums of the decade and cements Georgia's status as one of Britain's rising R&B stars. She gets called the next Amy Winehouse and the next Lauryn Hill. She moves to London. She moves to the big city. Fame and fortune await. But for this album, Georgia Smith collaborated with people from her small town. She moved back to her small town And she, like a lot of musicians of her generation, is beginning to question what is worth giving up for all that fame. Georgia has just released her sophomore album. It's called Falling or Flying. It sounds like this. It's Georgia Smith. And little things, I wanted to give you a little taste of what her voice sounds like. Georgia joined me from her home in Walsall, in the West Midlands, in the UK. Here's our conversation. Georgia, welcome back to the show. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you too. Thanks for having me again. Congratulations on the album. I really love it. Thank you. Me too. Answer me this now. When your first record gets as big as it did, 
like when Mm -hmm. everything kind of comes true for you on your first record, is there pressure either from you yourself or from other people when it comes to the record after that one? You know what? I didn't feel any pressure musically. I've always been given the freedom to just, you know, do what I want. And I tried not to put myself, I tried not to give myself pressure on. I didn't know if you would feel something like everyone's kind of has their eyes because the first record people didn't have their eyes on you as much Mm -hmm. and now that everyone has their eyes on me I feel the need to follow that first thing up with something even bigger or something like that no I'm very like I'm trying to be kinder to myself but I'm really like I'm my biggest critic so I I can relate to you on that I'm I'm only realizing now how much of the voice in my head is telling me bad stuff about myself and uh, I'm just trying to remind myself like oh no you're okay you're good Literally, I'm doing that too, because what you think will come true. If you keep telling yourself you're something, you actually might become that because you think it, that makes sense. Yeah, you, you can sort of like um, embody the worst element, of the worst version of yourself because that's, what, that's mm-hmm. what you think you are. It is a little surprising though, because things have really worked out for you not worked out for you but like things have really happened for you in a way that's mm-hmm. kind, kind of unexpected like I just want to play the, the, the one of the, the kind of the first big one just take a listen to this don't you run when you hear the sirens coming when you hear the sirens coming you better not run cause the sirens not coming for you what have you done you went to school that day was a bit late but it was a Monday kept after class for answering back you apologize so that's Georgia Smith and, and Blue Lights. Mm-hmm. For people who don't know, that song was a song that Georgia uploaded to SoundCloud and everything kind of changed. Who were you when you came up with that song? <laughs> that's funny that you say that because I was like, listen, I don't listen to that song. Like I sing it, but I don't sound like that when I sing it. Like I sound like a little girl because <laughs> I was. But um, I was Georgia at 16 or 17. Uh, in school, in her room, making music. What is the experience like of watching a song kind of explode the way that one did from your bedroom? It's a lot. I'm so grateful for like people who listen to my music and take it in and that my music can do something with it that's make you feel happy or make you cry and realise some situation or make you not feel alone. But then the other side of it is people can be horrible. And sometimes it can get too much. And I think recently I've just felt like, oh my God, it's a bit too much. But not everyone does this. There's a reason I can do what I do. What, what's the reason? Maybe I'll know when I'm older. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll know like, when I'm grown, a bit more grown up. You know, it strikes me that really early in your career, right after Blue Lights comes out, you know, you're, you're, you're having this sort of unexpected fame that you were talking to me about. You were really new on the scene. You were getting a lot of attention. Then at the same time, you're being brought in to work with folks like Drake. You worked on uh, his 2017 EP, More Life. You worked on Kendrick Lamar's uh, uh, the, the soundtrack for the Black Panther movie. You're 19 years old when this is all happening. Like I said, you're brand new. And Drake is at the top of his powers. And Kendrick Lamar... She just won the Pulitzer Prize at this moment. How were you feeling going into these collaborations and how did you handle going into these collaborations? Mm, well, I was a bit like, oh my gosh, these people listen to me. But <laughs> I was trying to not get like too faced by it and just not overthink it. And I had a lot of fun, yeah. You know, no nerves? 
No, not really. I do get nervous, but I guess I thought to myself, well, they wouldn't be asking me for no reason if they didn't want to work with me. Like, I'm supposed to be here. What a lovely way of thinking about that, because I think if I was to walk in with two of these people sort of like who are very well established at this point and I was new, I'd be I'd be kind of now, mind you, I do know people who are on that level are generally very nice and they're generally mm-hmm. very welcoming. And they and they didn't get to where they are without being kind, kind to people. So I can I can probably understand that was the case, too. I love what you said there that you recognized that they wouldn't have brought you in unless they wanted to hear something in you. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's how I think about most things. If something's not for me, I'm not going to get a chance with it. You, you talked to me a little bit about, um, I, when I was reading up on you, I read a little bit about like that, you know, when the, when the record kind of blows up, you're living, you're living in London and I should say you've, you've moved home now. But, mm-hmm. um, moved but, back home. Yeah. Moved back home to, to, uh, is it Walsall? Mm-hmm. You said it right. Warsaw, it's not far from Birmingham. Thank you very much. I always feel like people are saying Warsaw in Poland whenever they say that. But when I moved to London, people used to ask, where are you from? I was like, Warsaw, they're like, you don't know Polish. But it's like, well, yeah, it could be Polish, but no, I'm from Warsaw, not Warsaw. Right. Um, <laughs> I just love, sorry, hold on. I just want to say I loved hearing you say that just then. I'm from Warsaw, not Warsaw. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds the exact same. Tell me what you found challenging about living in London? So in the beginning, London was like, oh my gosh, it was the big city. I wanted to move there. I wanted to get out of my small town. I wanted to be in this busy life, fast place to get on the tube, just have a London life, da, 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 all that stuff. And then put music out. And I probably should have moved back like when I started to go on tour and had Warsaw as a base rather than London. The more music I put out and like the kind of more like known I became, that's when I think the intensity of London as a city and how it can feel a bit overwhelming and you can feel a bit trapped and like it's just not the same as Warsaw and I felt just like I should have moved back years ago but there's a reason why I moved back now and why I didn't move back then but yeah London was great and I feel like it's not it served its purpose for me but I was there in the beginning it was amazing like I couldn't imagine living back home. Now, I can't imagine living in London. Like, I just like going down to London for, like, work. Yeah. I think it became too connected to, like, Georgia Smith. <laughs> but, like, but that's, <laughs> that makes sense. that's rare, Georgia. Like, most people, when they, when they, as their career gets bigger and bigger, they move to places like London and New York because mm. that's what they want. Mm. And it's rare what, for what you did to go back to your kind of smaller town. It's only, like, mm, one hour, 42 hours drive to London from from where I live. So if I need to go in, I can just go in for the day. And I feel a lot more balanced doing that now rather than staying there. What did you mean when you said to me, when I was in London, I was walking down the street, it was a little too Georgia Smith? When I'm back home, I feel like I actually have a life. London just makes me think of work, 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 Georgia Smith, um, people know me. Uh, I don't want to go anywhere. That's how I feel. (laughs) Yeah. Even though people know me here, it's different now. People here, they're like proud of me, and also I do my mate. Do you find it easier to create music now that you're home? I find it easier to be myself now I'm home. That's what it is. I can kind of create anywhere, but I think when I'm in London, I'm not myself as much. I want to listen to a, a, a track off the record. Take a listen to this. Go ahead, track me. Because I'm safe behind these walls. Think you can take me through the vulgar. 
a little bit of Try Me by Georgia Smith. It's off her new album, Falling or Flying. Talk to me a little bit about where that song came from. Tell me what it's about. Before I put out music, not many people had an opinion on me. And then when I put out music, I suddenly got all these opinions and not from the world. Like The whole world does not know about me, but like it feels like the world. And a lot of people have something to say about me, whether it's my music or how I look, or what I'm doing. And it's like, wow. I haven't really changed that much. It's actually everything around me has changed and how people perceive me and what people want to tell me about me. So that's what that song's about. I want to play uh, one more track from the record. Take a listen to this. That is Greatest Gift by my guest, Georgia Smith. A beautiful message this song has. You're talking to yourself in this one. What is the song about? I'm talking to my younger self. I am myself now because I'm super proud of myself and the little girl that I was. And that it's taken me a while to like step back and just be like, you're okay, you know, like you've got this. And I wish when I've been down or been going through some stuff that I could have been what we were saying before, like kinder to myself and just made things easier for myself. I was upset or something, but looking forward, things are good. Thanks so much for making the time for us today. I really appreciate it. No, thank you so much too. This is really cool. Any other day, any other time, I'll be on my way. There was a time where you tried and you said, why would you fight what was inside? That wasn't part of the plan, now I know that I should go. Looking for some reasons, tell me there's something wrong with it. Tell me there's something inside that I need. You know I'm not gonna stay the night. Home. I just need one reason, I know there's nothing wrong with this. Hard to pretend it's not what I want. Way too close to read my mind. Georgia Smith and Feelings featuring Jay Huss. Before that, my conversation with Georgia Smith. Her second album, Falling or Flying, is out now. And that's it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, Roy Wood Jr. You might know Roy Wood Jr. He's one of the correspondents on Trevor Noah's Daily Show. In fact, when Trevor Noah left the Daily Show, everyone thought that Roy Wood Jr. was going to be the host. So why, just the other week, did he take his hat out of the ring? Why did he say he doesn't want to host the Daily Show? In fact... He's questioning the value of late night TV as a whole. An honest, a surprisingly honest conversation with an insider of television, Roy Wood Jr. tomorrow on the show. I cannot wait for you to hear that. If you missed his conversation about the controversy around Hasan Minhaj, also from The Daily Show on Commotion, you can find that on their podcast, Commotion. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.